Good afternoon. My name is Matt Seafield, and I'm a senior from Arlington Heights, Illinois, and on Student Senate, I serve as the Vice President of Administration. On behalf of everyone at Calvin, welcome to the January Series 2018. We would also like to give a special welcome to three of our 52 remote webcast sites, Spring, Texas, Muskegon, Michigan, and Palos Heights, Illinois. And now, if you'll please pray with me. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunities you give us. Particularly, we thank you for the opportunity to learn today. We ask that you bless not only the speaker, but each and every person in this room. Help us to be attentive and to walk away feeling rejuvenated and refreshed. We are forever grateful for your grace and mercy, and in your holy name we pray, amen. And now, Kevin Timpey, professor of philosophy, will introduce our guest. Thank you. Individuals with disabilities are among the highest unemployed subpopulation in the United States. According to one recent study, approximately 85% of individuals with an autism spectrum disorder, for instance, are either under or unemployed. As a senior vice president at Walgreens, today's speaker, Randy Lewis, decided to take steps to improve the future prospects for individuals not only with autism, but with other kinds of disabilities as well. He pioneered a model which shows not only that companies can employ individuals with disabilities, but that the company itself is better off when they do. Like other forms of inclusion, inclusive hiring contributes to the common good. Now figuring out how to do this requires setting aside our preconceived notions and many times stereotypes of people with disabilities and taking seriously their testimony and input. As our guest puts it in a recent TED talk, we had to learn to never assume what people can and cannot do. Calvin College is grateful to Bruce and Mary Okama and the Calvin Center for Innovation and Business for underwriting today's presentation. After his presentation, Randy will be available in the West Lobby to greet the audience along with copies of his book. Please welcome me in joining, please join me in welcoming Randy Lewis. Good afternoon. What a beautiful sight. So how do you like the start of the slide there? Because that's going to play a little bit into this, and so I'm going to tell you a story, and I hope you find yourself in it. Now, I would usually say, ask the, most of the audience to recall their autism, and uh, most of us who are in the later stages of life will tend to call those days probably when we were college students, somewhere around that. Would that be fair to say? That when we were going to change the world and uh, we created Earth Day, all those things like the age of Aquarius. <laughs> and then we got out there and the world broke us. But this, I want everyone to recall that time because you are in this story too. So to kind of give you an idea of what the story is a little bit about, let's, I'll show you a movie. This was an ABC a national story that they did about what, whatever kicked this off that I'm going to be talking about. 
and work in progress. An employer proving disabled people will work just as hard as anyone else, if given the chance. From ABC News headquarters, this is World News. Finally tonight, an economic success story that is, more importantly, a human success story. A recent study found that the unemployment rate for Americans with disabilities is 44%. There are laws against discrimination, but many employers still question whether disabled people can really do the job. Betsy Stark found one company with some answers. At first glance, this Walgreens distribution center in Anderson, South Carolina, seems ordinary enough. But look a little closer. I'll tell you what, I love this job. And it is anything but. I have been happy with it, I'm contented, and I've, I've got people all around me that's the best friends I've ever had in the whole world. What's special about this place is that Julia Turner and more than 40% of her 700 co-workers are disabled. Julia has Down syndrome. Daryl Perry, who works right next to her, mentally retarded. What are these things, Daryl? It tells you all kinds of tips. Oh, so these are tips on how to do your job? Do my job. Garrett Tada has autism. Morning, R. Morning, Rick. Luann Bannister, one of their training supervisors, in a wheelchair. And Angela Mackey, who recruited most of them. You feel better? Yeah. Angie has cerebral palsy. I hope that you know, through my working through this program I'm showing that disability or not, we all have potential, we all have value. In this building, abled and disabled workers do many of the same jobs and earn the same pay. Corporate America thinks they need to give somebody with a disability an easier job. Everyone here is on equal ground. Can you please take care of that for me? Yes, sir. I know In this building, people with disabilities how you doing man are not invisible and you see somebody with with a disability everybody avoids that person here we come up and shake your hand it's totally different the quiet revolution happening in anderson is the brainchild of walgreens executive randy lewis everything okay <laughs> lewis has a 19 year old son with autism i was a parent i saw the future and so the question is, given our position, maybe we could be an example, maybe we could use our position of leadership to try to change the work environment. This was personal. Very personal. Very personal. Lewis says Anderson is no less productive than other distribution centers. People come to me and say, will this work in my environment? Yes, it will. How you doing, Stephanie? This is, this is not just the good thing to do, the right thing to do. This is better. Does it make you feel good to it get sure a paycheck every week? <laughs> and if anybody needs a big check, come over here and we'll give, they'll give it to you. But only if you earn it. Betsy Stark, ABC News, Anderson, South Carolina. And that is World News for this Monday. I'm Charlie Gibson, and I hope you had a good day. For all of us at ABC News, have a good night. So that's where the story started, in Anderson, South Carolina. Now, every story has a backstory, too. How many of you have children? 
Now, when I talk to other parents, isn't it true for us parents that every child is a lesson? Sometimes hard lessons. Sometimes by what they say, what they do. Sometimes just who they are. Here is my family. I, we have three children. Our, our son, he talked about, and that was 17 at the time, or 19 at the time. He's 29. That was 10 years ago that happened. Austin, I have two daughters, one on each side. One lives in Maine. One lives in, in uh, Atlanta. We live in Chicago. Sent them to colleges within 150 miles of home, like you're supposed to as parents. So they'll come and live home close. Didn't work out. And I sent them to private schools too, so gee whiz. <laughs> so everyone is a lesson. Now, Austin has autism. And uh, we got, he got diagnosed at about age three. And we noticed because he was, he had a couple of unique behaviors. He'd run away every time he got a chance. He didn't speak. He didn't, matter of fact, he didn't speak till he was age 10. And if you speak to him today, you will think he's trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> he got diagnosed, and we didn't know at the time how all, all this would turn out. But Austin, he's a unique, unique child. One thing we've learned is we tend to think, in typically abled people, as in our own adult lives, you know, at 21, we're pretty much adults. And that's kind of where a lot of things stop. What I've learned about Austin, he continues to learn. When he was younger, he was, his favorite topics were American Airlines, Michael J. Fox, The Simpsons, uh, Beverly Hills, California, and the list like that. Austin has more books than anybody in the house now. We have to kind of sneak him out of his room every once in a while, become he's sort of a, he's either a librarian or a hoarder. We're going to go with <laughs> librarian. His, his collection of, of videos is, is incredible and very diverse. He has what you might expect. He has all the animated movies, but he also has Milk as a movie. He has every uh, Marvel, every action movie, but lots of serious ones so that we would never expect him to have. And if he watches, it comes in at the end of news, he will ask, is there a war going on or why this is happening or, or whatever. So I get to have lots of philosophical discussions with my son who has autism that I would never have with my typically able daughters. Now, no doubt, oh, I have to tell you this, Austin drives. Austin drives. He was the first student to go through the public school system in special ed with autism because our special ed program, back when he was diagnosed at age three, they, we sent them all out to a special education district. And I remember the head of special ed said, well, we would like Austin to be the first child with autism we take through the mainstream school system because our special ed is not that special. So Austin went through that. He learned how it went through to driver's ed twice. He learned really how to drive like most of our children learn to drive. How we teach our children. Parents, we teach those children by having them practice illegally. 
at night through the neighborhood. Passed his driver's test the first time. First time. Now his sister, Allison, his younger sister, failed hers twice. (laughs) And one day Allison has some friends over to the house and they're sitting around the kitchen table and they're talking and Austin's kind of on the side, you know, just kind of listening, not participating. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Austin says, Elmer, Allison failed her driver's test twice. (laughs) Now you can imagine how that went over with Allison. (laughs) So I was listening there in the the kitchen. I thought, well, I speak real-time coaching. Austin, you can't talk about Allison's driver's test. You can only talk about your own. Elmer, on my driver's test, I didn't back over a lawn. <laughs> you got to love it. And on some days, he is my chauffeur to the airport. I'll just give you a quick story about Austin, how, how interesting our life is together. He will get up. And he'll get up at 5.30 in the morning if need be. He'll come to the airport at 1 o'clock in the morning if need be to pick me up. I pay him $20. So, one time, but I have to tell you, every experience is the same. He'll, and what's great about Austin, I can say, Austin, I'm going to need to get up at 5.30. Will you get me to the airport? No problem. And, I, and so he gets up. He takes the bag downstairs and takes me to the airport. We get through the traffic, and every time, it's the same experience. We get pull, pull up to United, and I say, every time, Austin, you got up early this morning, you got me here safely, and you got me here on time. Thank you, and I love you. And every time, Austin will turn to me and say, $20. (laughs) Every time. But what's great about Austin, if I don't have it, he'll take credit. (laughs) And if I forget to pay him, he'll sneak it out of my wallet. (laughs) Such is life. But despite all the things that Austin can do, he does have challenges. He probably reads, probably at elementary school level, maybe sixth or seventh grade. He would have difficulty with uh, what-if questions. He has difficulty with, with uh, communications, formulating ideas. I see, you know, he stumbles. I can hear him working through what he's trying to say. He is not very. He can't do long division or multiplication. Although, if you tell him what year you're born, he immediately can tell you how old you are, or you tell him what, or how old you are, he'll tell you what year. And then he'll want to start asking you about it. Despite the gifts and the challenges, and one thing Austin will have is difficulty finding a job. If he's like 95% of people like him. Something that we parents start thinking about Almost the instant we get the bad news. Because a job can change the arc of a life. A job can mean security, 
can mean relationships. It can mean possibility. Now, if we talked about when Austin got the driver's license compared to our other daughters, like going to college, we said him getting that driver's license was like the equivalent of summa cum laude from the finest university. It was, it was worth that much in as far as impact on his life. But a job, a job would be like a Nobel Prize. But when it comes to getting that job, people with disabilities die a death of a thousand cuts. I know it as a parent because I've been on that end and I know it as an employer on that end. They may not be able to get through that online application with the robo-screening. They may not have the experience we're looking for, if any experience at all. They may not, and certainly may not interview well. And what job description out there in America that does not say, even if it's the most manual of labor or whatever, it says good communication skills. A thousand cuts. Now one thing about Austin has taught me, I underestimated him all along the way. He has done things that I would have never thought possible. And the gift that Austin gave me, besides a gift of patience, he gave me the gift of seeing past, past the challenges, past the autism, to see a full and complete person who continues to surprise me. And he gave me the idea that perhaps there's a group of people out there that we have always underestimated. If we would only give them a chance, they could be full participants in this life. So knowing that, here I am in my private life, knowing all these challenges, and here, is, here I am in my professional life, a big wig at Walgreens in charge of a division of 10,000 people with 20 distribution centers across the country. And we're hiring 1,000 people a year. And I'm thinking, here's the problem. We're sitting on the solution, jobs. And if a company like Walgreens can't do something about this, what company can? And if I can't do something about this, who will? So we, we didn't know much except that we wanted to give these people with disabilities a chance to work. A good idea. So we went out and contracted, we not knowing anything about disabilities, we contracted with some agencies. Why don't you bring a group of people in with disabilities and we'll give them the non-critical work, the ancillary tasks the non-mission critical, that doesn't require high quality, like tagging merchandise or doing janitorial. And every, we did that, and everybody thought we were heroes. They wanted to give us awards. What great corporate citizens we were. And the managers would talk about how great it was and the attitude of the workers. And when the Ohio Turnpike was turned down, closed down, people called up and said, I'm walking to work. I could only have that attitude around our other employees and I was down at our Dallas Center and this woman was talking to me about how great it was says we've given them team member uh, t-shirts and name badges so they'll feel part of the team 
but they weren't. And how do I know that? Because as she was talking to me, she shows me a picture. She says, here's a picture of the group. And here's that picture she showed me. And she's in the picture. And I don't know who she is. Is she our employee? Is she part of the enclave, this, this group that has come in? I have no idea. And she must have seen the puzzlement on my face because she felt obligated to say, oh, but I'm not one of them. I'm their supervisor. It struck with force of harpoon. Them. They weren't doing mission critical work. They weren't earning the same pay. They weren't our employees. And they weren't us. And I realized that we had to do better. So time comes along. We said, why don't we... What, we have all these folks in our building. We've certainly been exposed to them. Everybody likes the, the work they're doing. Why don't we hire some folks out of that group and put them on the line just like everybody else? And we asked for some volunteers in our building. said, who would like to work with some members of our group that we're going to hire and be sort of their peer coaches? And a lot of people volunteered. And we hired people here and there. One of those people we hired was a fellow named Chuck. Chuck has autism, he's on the spectrum. He, I think, he, he drives, certainly. I think he had an associate's degree in accounting. Couldn't find a job. We put him between two ladies out there who volunteered. And Chuck did a great job. Now, he did have his quirks. In the world of autism, that's what we parents, that's what we aspire to. Our children would be considered quirky. That's right above weird which we aspire to. We're happy with that. Now, once they're weird, oh, maybe they're quirky. And then even above that, it's maybe like one of our uncles. <laughs> but he was, Chuck had his quirks. We learned his favorite color is purple. And how we learned that is because once or twice a day, a purple tote, plastic tote, is what we ship our merchandise in, would come by his area, and Chuck would stop, let out a yell of glee, and start dancing. <laughs> Something we had never seen. And quite frankly, management was kind of in a flummox. Is this appropriate behavior for the workplace? I mean, if we were talking about accommodations, is this something we can accommodate? But very quickly, when they thought through it, which do we prefer? Dancing or complaining? <laughs> Let's go with the dancing. <laughs> Chuck taught us that performance comes in lots of different packages. And when I talked to those two ladies on a visit there, I asked them, in this building of 500, is there anybody who has ever said anything disparaging about Chuck or made a snide remark or bullied him or anything like that? And she said, well, if anybody has a problem with Chuck, they got a problem with us. Now we were making progress. Now we were making progress. And having Chuck and a few others across the system like him 
really kind of opened up to the bigger idea. Maybe there's this whole group of people that if we just give them the opportunity can perform as well. As well or better. Let's go big. And we had those two ladies working with Chuck. And I talked to an uh, autism expert, and we thought hiring people with autism would be a difficult disability. So taking that as, let's go with the difficult ones. I asked him, I said, how many typically able, oh, by the way, that's the word we use in the community now. Used to use normal. Just look around. You can see that that's not, uh, not appropriate anymore. <laughs> it's a wide disparity, dis, disparity out there. So typically able. I said, how many typically able people would, employees would I need as peer coaches for each person with autism? He said two. So he said that. We had experience of two to one. Independent reporting. We had a fact. Why couldn't one out of three people in this new building we were going to build be a person with a disability? Now we had to be ever mindful if we were going to do something like this. Now we're talking about 600 people, 200 people with disabilities in one building of 600. Something that had never been done in a mission-critical site anywhere in the world with specific intent that we're going to hire people with disabilities. Now, we had to be ever mindful we're a business, not a charity. So if, this was gonna, if we were going to do this, it had to be same, same. Same jobs, same pay, same performance standards, side by side. And when we presented it to the board, the board, they asked all the typical questions about building a building and efficiency and all these things. They're going to be our most expensive, but our also most best performing building that we ever had. They asked one salient question. What if it doesn't work? And uh, we kind of glanced, at, glanced that off by saying, there's lots of things we try and don't work. We'll adjust. And then we also had a backup that works. All of those in the audience who have worked in business, you know, we know, and probably in education too, when we want to do something that goes against the norm, when we want to change, we want to go against a policy or a rule or a long-time tradition, there's something that we can get that done by covering it with a cloak of almost invisibility. We call it a pilot. You can say, we're going, to hire, we're going to change our hiring process. Oh, you can't do that. It's a pilot. Okay. <laughs> we're going to change our policy to do that. Oh, no, we've had that for 100 years. Pilot. Okay. So that was, our go that was how we were going to go into this. So we made the announcement, and you would have thought that we had cured, we're in cured cancer. The Wall Street Journal picked this up. Articles across the country picked it up. And I was thinking, gee whiz, this is 200 jobs in a little town in South Carolina and it becomes national news. Is the situation so dire that it warrants this kind of coverage? Well, certainly people in the disability community heard about it. One of those was this woman, Desiree Neff. Desiree lived in San Diego, 
working as a temp. Now, Desiree has this rare muscle condition that requires that she use a walker. So she's in San Francisco, I mean San Diego, goes to work one day, and, her and she's using her walker, and her boss says, what's the deal with the walker? And Desiree says, well, I don't need it all the time, but I do need it sometimes. He said, great, come back when you don't. Desiree packed up her family, moved across the country a year before we opened just for the chance to apply. And today, she's a manager in that building. Now, people will ask, what kind of disabilities could we not accommodate? Aren't there some disabilities out there that are not appropriate for this kind of work? We haven't found a single one. Because everything's a spectrum. Everything's a spectrum. Weirdness is a spectrum. Everything's a spectrum. For example, I remember when we started, somebody said, are we going to hire people with mental illness? Because that's a scary one. Mental illness. And I had never thought about it. But thinking it through, I, I, I said, in our company, I know we have got to have people with mental illness. You know, people with schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia or compulsively depressive or com obsessive compulsive disorder or, uh, or explosive anger disorder. And that's just the senior executives at the Walgreen Company. <laughs> Let's give it a go. And we have been able to hire lots of people with mental illness, not all, not all people with autism, not all typically able people at all, either. And we've got some great employees. You saw Angie in the film. Angie has cerebral palsy. You'll see her later in another film. She has what she calls, she is ambulatory, means she can walk, although she calls it her sexy walk. She claims her disability. She can't back away from it because she can't hide it. Now, we wouldn't hire Desiree because of that walker, quite frankly, going back to her, because we would have thought, you know, we like our employees to be able to get to all places in the building, and there's some places that are difficult with a walker. Now, Angie, we probably would not have hired because even though she went to Clemson, got a master's degree with all A's, when Angie came, would, have rolled, would have walked in there, we would listen to her and said, you know, maybe some of our employees will have difficulty trying to understand her because it's noisy out there. Or maybe she'd feel, make people feel uncomfortable. And we would have gone on to the next candidate. Angie is probably the best HR person I have ever worked with in my life. And today, she's running her own building down in Georgia, somebody who we would never have given a chance. Or Harrison. Harrison has autism. He came out of the school system. He started working in that building day one. Harrison cannot multiply or add. Now, I know that because when I met him, he was in a training center, and he says, Randy, I can, I can process 10 cases a minute. 
And I said, Harrison, that's great, but we don't measure in minutes. We measure in hours. So how many can you do in an hour? And he kind of gave me a puzzled look, and then I had to think about it too. <laughs> ten a minute. What's ten times sixty, Harrison? He says, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I know that's 600. We hoped for 400. Here's a person who can't multiply, but performs that job in every job we've given him at 150%. And when I saw him this last summer, he has a headset he wears now. And I asked him about that. I said, what's the headset for? And he said, well, in addition to the, my area here that I've got to make sure that stays up, when another area is running behind, they call me so I can go over there and help them catch up. A person who had never got, even gotten through the application because he can't do arithmetic. And we're lucky to have him. Just like the hundreds of others like him. Now you might ask out, that opened in 2007, so and this report came out and a little shortly after 2007. How did it turn out? Well, I got, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> Spoiler alert. This building became the most productive in the 100-year history of our company. And we knew people would have a difficulty believing it, but the nice thing about it is with one-third of your workforce, you can't carry mascots. The data is the data, but we knew that people would still be doubtful, so we studied the data, and we looked at 400,000 hours of data across 35 jobs, across 35 centers, to compare safety, retention, productivity, quality. And we published all the results. People with disabilities perform as well or better. Statistically, we'll say the same. Safety is better. People always worry, oh, I can't hire people with disabilities. We got, we got machines that can cut your hands off and all that kind of stuff. Yes, we have those kind of machines too, and we have forklift trucks and everything else. People with disabilities work safer. And people say, how can that be? They follow the rules. Retention is better. Absenteeism is less. In this country, and I know it happens here in Michigan, we don't have a center in Michigan, but we do. We have stores here. We know that this happens in Michigan. Two or three times a year, but especially after the day after the Super Bowl, this flu passes through the country. This <laughs> epidemic of flu, this heinous flu. This is a population that's immune. Absenteeism is about half. Something we never we were grateful for. And here's another thing about it. An unexpected benefit. Most cafeterias in this country are still segregated, self-segregated around race. All our other buildings self-segregate around race, even our corporate headquarters. In this building, one of the first things we noticed, it didn't. It's like a Star Wars bar. 
People get up, move around, everybody talks to each other. How did that happen? And I think it's because once you see a person who you will assume every immediate reaction is they can't do the job, they're the lesser person, I pity them, but they really can't do the work. And once you see that that paradigm goes away, all the other ones fall away too. Now, the, I will tell you the secret. I, I, I wanted to bring you the technology. Here's the secret to our technology that made it work. It's called ATP. Ask the person. Ask the person. For instance, before, if somebody came in with one arm or one hand, and our procedures say it requires two hands, we would say you're disqualified. What we learned is a person with one arm or one hand probably has a lifetime of experience of dealing with challenges. So now we ask him how they would do the work. A great example of that is lift trucks. Uh, lift trucks, are everybody familiar with lift trucks? They're quiet, uh, around pedestrians, they're very dangerous, sort of like Priuses without the snobbiness. So let's imagine that in the, in, the, in the parking lot. So the procedure is in every building, just about across industries, is when you come up to an intersection where you can't see the pedestrians or whatever, is to tap on your horn to warn the pedestrians that you're in the area. So the question would be, how can a deaf person drive a forklift if they can't test their horn, if they're not sure their horn works? So the procedure is, Every morning is for the, when you ever get on the, to a lift, make sure your horn works. How would a deaf person know? ATP, ask the person. Go to the first person. How would you know your, how would you test your horn? Well, what I do is I put my hand on the cowling, tap it, feel the vibrations. Sounds good. Ask another person. How would you test your horn? Well, what I do is, pull up behind a group of people who are just talking. <laughs> a lot more fun. <laughs> Ask the person. It works. And guess what? It works with typically able people too. In our stores, I remember the discussion was, can a deaf person be a clerk in the store? Because if they're working on the filling the shelves, which is a lot of our work in our stores, and a customer comes by and they ask the the clerk, a question, how would a deaf person know to respond? And the, and the customer certainly won't know they're deaf, you know, unless you want to put a sign on their back, I am deaf, knock here, you don't do that. So maybe deaf people are not an appropriate job in our stores. Ask the person, go to a deaf person, how would you know that a customer is in your aisle if you can't hear them? I'd be looking. Nice answer, huh? I would be looking. An incredible answer. Anybody ever thought about that? We didn't. Over and over and over, this came to us. Now, how, how did this same building work out? This is about the number of people with disabilities 
in that building. And guess what? We took it from there and we moved it all across the chain. In our other buildings that were not so automated and in our traditional buildings and whatever, this is what it looks like today. This is your cost-benefit study. Within four years, 10% of our entire workforce was composed of people with disabilities. Most had never had a job before. 10% within four years. They've just changed the goal to 20% by 2020. And also what gave this power, we used to never let anybody go through our buildings because we either, we thought one of two things, we're so good we don't want our competitors to know, or probably we're so bad and we don't want our competitors to know. <laughs> But when we started this, what gave it power, we said, this is something so important. We are not, we're going to open our doors to the world and give it all away, even to our competitors. Even Walmart. <laughs> and CVS. Come, see for yourself. And a lot of companies have come. And these are just some of them. Big companies. My favorite is that bottom right. And you know why? You never know how this is going to work out. One of the companies that did this is Meyer. Rick Keyes is their CEO. At the time, he had the same job as I did. We were peers. And when he became CEO about two or three, two years ago, he called me up and he says, Randy, we're opening up, we're expanding it here in the, in the Midwest, and we're opening up a center on the Illinois line up in... Uh, Wisconsin, I don't know how far that is from your house, but I remember Austin drives. <laughs> and he still gets $20. <laughs> but if Austin can get there, we'd like him to be, consider him as one of our first employees. My son drives an hour each way, working full time, earning a living wage. Something that I would have never have dreamed of. Something that I would have never expected. There will be more stories like that as time goes on. Now, I'll tell you one last part. This is a, a study. One of the things we, 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 an extra benefit, we knew that we would impact people with disabilities. We knew they would impact their families. What we didn't know would be the impact on people without disabilities. It changed the way we managed. It changed the way we work. It changed the way we engage. Part of that, how would you like the world to be? How would you like the workplace to be? Imagine, recall that idealism. If you could have the ideal workplace, what would it be like? How would people deal with each other? How would management be? It was astounding. Managers talk about the difference it's made in the way they manage. They talk about how to make each person successful. That's their main job. Sure, it's always about the numbers. Sure, it's about production and quality and safety. Those are always there. But they will talk about and brag about how they made somebody successful. And so this was studied, a study that came out about a year ago that actually quantifies that. To go from a my way or the highway type of management, which is the easiest, to a people-focused. My job is to make everybody around me successful. This is managers talking. This is team members talking. It's about us, not about me 
And when you have everybody aligned around that philosophy, aiming toward a common goal, it is like nitroglycerin in a bottle. Now, I'll just show you a quick film of managers talking. Now, this, this young filmmaker came down as a senior project. He's now a producer out in, uh, in Hollywood, a young producer. And uh, he made a, a senior project, came down and made a film. And he thought he was going to make a film about people with disabilities. What he ended up on with the film I'm going to show you, it's about the people, the managers, talking about the change that's made in them. So let's, I'll show you that movie real quick. Why have power if we don't use it for good? In 2007, Walgreens launched a new generation of distribution centers like no other in the world. The objective was to build the most productive center ever and to employ a large number of people with disabilities. The one element that I've never allowed into my management style, nor into any facility that I've ever been into, and that's managing with love, managing with care, managing with a heart. That's the big change here. It's all about the people. To manage and be successful in our building, you have to focus on the individual. Everybody has a different motivator. And it's up to the man to find out what that motivator is. It takes a lot of creativity and to come in with no fear. I am allowed to be creative with the team members that it's not a hardline stance to where either you get it or you don't get it. It's an opportunity to see what the issue is and work with that team member. That relationship that you make with an individual, whether they have a disability or not, makes or breaks that person's success. We are very focused in this building on making folks successful. As far as the key indicators that we look at for safety and productivity, we are the number one. We started each day as one. When Daryl made production, we all made production. When Melissa did excellent at accuracy, we all did excellent with accuracy. When John worked safely, we all worked safely. It changes the whole culture of a building. You would have a team that thinks about other people before they think about themselves. We've all been changed. Made me a better manager. It's made me a better man. It's made me a better father and a better husband. I'm a better leader because of it. I got more compassion, got more patience, which has not always been a strong suit of mine. I see folks for who they are now, as opposed to what they look like. People with disabilities perform the same jobs, earn the same pay, and are held to the same performance standards as everyone else. The center is the most productive in this company's history. Over 30% of the workforce has a disability. Most had never been able to secure a steady job before. The idea spread and within four years, over a thousand people with disabilities were working in its centers across the country. So, how would you want the world to be? The difference between what is and what can be, between what is and what should be, are those who jump into the breach and pick up the yoke and try to move the world forward if, if, if just a millionth of an inch, without promise of success, 
without reward. Ordinary people. Often when I talk to a group of young people, some people will come up and say, well, how do I find, I want to make a difference, how do I figure that out? And on my experience, I can only speak to my experience, I was confronted with this. I was exposed to the challenges and possibly the promise, but in my role, I also got to see a vision of being able to make a difference. And probably the best story that's applicable to me, and I think generally applicable, is a Zen story of all. This Zen master and his Zen disciple were going along, and then his disciple says, Master, why am I doing all these spiritual exercises? Will they make me enlightened? And the master says, it's about as much as you can make the sun rise in the morning. And the disciple says, well, then why am I spending all this time on this? And he says, so you'll be ready. And so that you'll be awake when the sun does rise. People ask me how I got the courage to do this. When I thought about all the people out there, parents like me, all those families who lay in bed at night like I was doing, staring at the ceiling, wondering what will happen to my child after I'm gone? Will there ever be enough? Will my child be safe? Who will look over? Who will watch over my child? It was a question of how could I not do it? And it struck with the force of a call. Sort of like I remember a pastor explaining one time what a conversion experience is like. I never forgot how he described it. He said a conversion experience is kind of like you're walking along and you feel the sunlight on the back of your neck. And you turn around and you see the sun in its full glory. That's what this was like. Now, to the students out there whose pile of tomorrows is bigger than their pile of yesterdays, the world awaits you. The world awaits you. And I only wish I could be there when the sun rises for you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Shore, Director of, An of Alumni Relations and Community Relations here at Calvin College, and we have some time for Q&A. Uh, if you have a question here in the audience, hold up your card and it will be collected and brought down directions on how to send them in electronically or on the screens. Also, some people have asked about um, our previous two talks that we had already this January series. Mary Halst had a list of questions for uh, people to ask their elders, and those are available online as well as the slides from yesterday's speech with Randy Lewis if people are looking for those. So I'm going to get started with a question from a student, and it's a what-if question. 
essentially. How different a person would you be if you hadn't had a child with disability? Well, this is kind of like plowing a field you don't want to plow. But on the other end, and I think most parents are like this too, it's a million-dollar experience that you wouldn't take a million dollars to repeat. But uh, there is no doubt my son has made me a better person, a better father in, in every way, to be more appreciative. Uh, he has no, in the, in, the, in the sad thing, he has no idea of his impact he's had on me. I will tell a quick story. When the book came out, uh, at our church, we did a local book signing. Now, Austin has a very odd sense of humor. He sees something on The Simpsons, he's going to deal with, he's going to write that line out somewhere. So I, we were doing a side-by-side book signing, and they want him to sign the book, which I thought was great, and then me. So Austin would sign his book, and then he'd come over to me, but he'd write a little phrase in, and I'd like, I am not a crook. <laughs> And I'd sign my name, and then so half, we only got to sign half as many books because I had to explain what the, what the world he was writing in. Kind of. I will only wish he had an idea of the impact he's had. Another student wondering if you can give an example or two of a so-called disability that turned out to be an asset for your company. Uh, you mean a better performer? Yeah. Uh, Right and left. I was just. It's it's not so much the disability. It's you know some disabilities that let, let focus are really good on focus. So autism may be around that, but they have also distractions. I think I think the standard is not. Don't go for Jackie Robinson. Everybody wants the story of Jackie Robinson. That it's got to be better. It's a superpower. You know we like to put it in that because it, it gives us a context for understanding why didn't we do something before. Oh, it's a superpower we didn't know about. And it, is that the standard we have to be? It's just as good. No, by the way, their presence there, that's the superpower. They're going to bring about everything that's good in us, not them having to be special. They bring out our specialness in us. One more little story. I, live at a, I, li- I, I go to the beach in, uh, in Miller Beach in, in Gary, it's southern end of the, of the beach, and it's it's a place where my wife and I like to talk about any Hoosier that can find a beer is out there that day. <laughs> and so it used to be, years ago, it was, it's getting better and better, but it would be kind of rough out there, and there, there would be fights. There would be a lot of uh, you know, cursing. They'd throw the football and a lot of F-bombs. <laughs> and so we got, we got very cynical, and we said, what's going to be the earliest in the morning we'll find Somebody's going to, we were going to see some young person fall down drunk on the beach. So we're out there in the early in the morning, and I look down the beach, and I see this uh, young man in the, rolling in the waves and two guys with him. And I, my immediate reaction is, gee whiz, we've broken the record. Here's somebody who's already had too much to drink, and they're trying to sober him up. But then I look closer, and I see a wheelchair there. And those two guys are about in their 40s. And this young man is probably about 25. And what they were doing is helping him experience the, the, the waves and such. And I said to my wife, today is going to be a good day on the beach. Mm-hmm. Because th- his presence here is going to remind everybody of who they are. And it was a fantastic day on the beach. That's the superpower.
This question wonders about her brother. Her brother is a disabled 21-year-old. He's about to time out of the public school system. What steps do you recommend taking for him to take to find meaningful employment? I think uh, the, the best way is to figure out, uh, find an agency as an advocate because they're the ones who are most likely are going to be the front line in, in encountering employers. There's a lot of people working on the supply side, we call that the supply side, of trying to make contacts inside the business community. It's really tough going it alone, especially if you look, talk, act, appear different. That's just the way of the world because it's so much easier to say, unfortunately, let's go to the next candidate. This question is from our remote site in British Columbia, wondering, uh, talking about a recent headline from CBS News of last year saying that Iceland Down syndrome births will now be close to zero in a few years because of a change in some laws there. And what would you say to Iceland or other countries that are on similar trajectories? Of uh, through uh, trying to eliminate trying to eliminate it by through births. abortion. I think that's going to be up to, that's the eugenics, I guess, is what that's, call, that's called. Um, what would I say to them? I, I don't have anything. So it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Downs is a tragedy. Certainly, abortion's a tragedy. I mean, I don't, don't have an answer for that. Because that, that will be one way of eliminating it. But at what cost? Yeah. And if you talk to parents of Downs, they definitely have a feeling about yep. that. Exactly. Again, because the assumption is it's going to be the worst case. That's the tragedy. Uh, this morning, uh, when you were speaking with the class, one of the students asked about the language that's used to um, talk about disabled people and how you can, how some people get um, perhaps concerned about the words that they're going to use or how they're going to talk about disabled people. And you had a great response to that. I wondered if you could. Uh, talk about that. Yeah the, yeah, the question is, you know, how fear is the biggest, one of the biggest impediments to interaction with people with disabilities. We think we're going to say the wrong thing, we think we're going to do the wrong thing. This is a world, we're all people. Intent matters, and intent can be detected very easily off the bat. You can make a mistake. I have made a, there's no more mistakes you're going to make than, than I am. But generally, if you're as general guidelines, is use people-first language. It's a person with autism. It's a person with cerebral palsy. And the reason that is because we tend to... They do not identify with their disability. This is one group of people who do not identify with what separates them. It's not like race. People may identify a person of color of a specific or a specific... This is a group that doesn't identify with, with that. So it's a person-first. The disability is an inconvenience. Sometimes it would be a major inconvenience. Sometimes it's a distraction. People first, person with autism. And here's the one that I, I, I failed at last. Wheelchair bound, wheelchair bound. We don't say that. It's wheelchair user. Because no, very few people who use wheelchairs wear them to bed. <laughs> That's how I, I was taught that. Saying, okay, imagine me trying to get the pajamas on and get into bed with this wheelchair. It's wheelchair user. And finally, I have several questions from people wondering about different minority groups and if your hiring practices extend to them too, such as uh, immigrants, non-English speakers, and those over 65. 
which might not necessarily be a minority group. <laughs> well, so the one thing that we, uh, people ask, can you discriminate against people? What about, could we hire, we said we're going to set aside one third of the jobs for people with disabilities. Is that discriminatory? No, because guess what? It includes every other group. The only thing, you, so that's the law. You can, you can discriminate against people without disabilities. So that's an all-inclusive. So his name knows that includes immigrants, people over 65. What was the other one? Uh, Non-English speakers. Non-English speakers, we have those too. So disabilities is an all-inclusive group. Great. You will be available in the lobby to sign his book, No Greatness Without Goodness. Let's thank Randy Lewis for being here with us today. Thank you, Rick. <laughs>